Welcome to the Best Work Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Henley-Smith. The goal of this show is to uncover the personal stories of successful software engineers, founders, thinkers, and leaders who are all navigating their own working journey. Finding our best work is often this hidden journey, uncovered through an ongoing conversation with ourselves and the world around us. Every one of these episodes is packed, full of timeless ideas you could apply to your own life. In this conversation, I speak to Daniel Svanova. Daniel is the co-founder of Superlinked and was previously a senior software engineer at Google before founding PrimeFlow as the CTO. He splits his time between the manic creation of being an executor and the quiet contemplation that comes with thinking about strategy and career goals. Based in Switzerland, Daniel shares how location can be one of the aspects that affects not only the life we lead outside of work, but also the macro level of how we work. We also discuss the rewards of going deep into learning and the natural feedback loops that form from repeating this process, as well as how we can make work more of a game, incorporating aspects of play into how we approach problems. Our conversation also covers how we can stay aligned to the visions we set for our careers and how we can measure our journey along that path in both the near and the long term. You are as close to the mountains as you can possibly be while staying in civilization. How has that choice affected your work? Yeah, that's an interesting one. And it didn't happen kind of by itself, right? So um, I moved to Switzerland about uh, 12 years ago. And when I moved um, from Slovakia, which is where I'm originally from, I went for just the biggest city, right? So kind of economic opportunity. Um, I uh, did some internships and then my own company and then I went back to Google and all of that was just easier living in a big city, which, you know, in Switzerland still means, you know, it's kind of like a small city globally, right? Um, and and so, so that's where I started and that felt sort of very utilitarian and reasonable. And then over time, I realized that actually, yeah, you need this sort of um, balance in life, I guess. So, and, and also kind of efficiency in the spare time, right? So, you know, I always like to go into the nature and do stuff there. And if the nature is very far, you just do it less often. And then, you know, you have to try harder to get there and organize it. And then it doesn't happen as much and you are miserable, right? So basically kind of this principle of just removing obstacles, right? I, I kind of every three years I moved uh, one village south from Zurich. And I did that like five times until I basically hit the sweet spot of access to the to the free time activities, let's say, and then still being able to be in the city in like half an hour. Um, and also there is like a third part of that Venn diagram, which is um, capital efficiency, because in Switzerland, different cantons have different income tax. And 
the one I'm in is basically, you know, like the really efficient one. Let's put, let's put it that way. <laughs> There's a sweet contradiction here because on the one hand, you're spending your days on a keyboard, but on the other hand, you're finding efficiency by being a little closer to nature or or being outside. Is that contradiction evident to you day to day? Does it give you anything that you particularly want? Yeah, I think I alternate between kind of two modes. And I think most people do or should, right? You have the mode of kind of producing some output, right? So that's when you are at the keyboard, you are, you know, you are talking to people, you are trying to get your ideas out there. That's the output, right? But then there is the kind of the reflection, the, you know, actually taking a step back and thinking about stuff. And for me, that second part, it really sucks to do that over a keyboard. Like it's, you know, because the keyboard is a kind of a medium of creation and it asks you to, uh, you know, put stuff in there. And and uh, maybe I just, you know, I'm not that good at multitasking, but I find that it's, it's better to separate those two moments and, um, you know, the forest is kind of uh, just a distraction-free place to do to do your thinking. So, you know. It makes me think of the two ideals in that scenario, this kind of crazed um, executor on the keyboard and this wild, thoughtful individual out in the mountains and how, in some ways, what you're doing in that scenario is trying to find the the kind of ideals, the, the truest versions of both of those things. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, that's exactly, you put it exactly right. So when I make something, it's kind of the, you know, I call it the episodes of manic creation, you know? So it's just sort of, um, just needs to get out of my head. And then, um, and then there is room for like a new thing to form. And, you know, the cycle continues. If we take this one step further, so I can see that behind you, on the one hand, you have a, a bike signifying perhaps the outdoors and that wild part. And that's over your right shoulder. And over your left shoulder, you have uh, wine glasses upside down, uh, perhaps representing the other side too. Is there something here? It feels like almost this, the same thing again. Yeah, I mean, uh, like, the, you know, the yin-yang people weren't just, uh, you know, uh, throwing pebbles into the wind. Like, uh, those, guys, <laughs> those guys thought about this for a while. And it's not like, you know, I'm sitting here doing uh, sort of uh, apartment design to embody these principles, right? Like, actually, I think you were the first one who kind of reflected on that. People usually, it's actually interesting. So people usually talk about one of those things, uh, but not really both, right? They sort of self-identify into one of those two sort of uh, poles. And then we spend a little bit of time at the start of each call talking about, you know, either the sports or the, the you know, hedonism or whatever you want to call it. Um, and yeah, it's just a cool way for to kind of uh, see what where people go, right? And then be able to connect with them. So, so you are very see. meta. You are staying on kind of, you know, <laughs> the reflective layer here. <laughs> I can see how it makes an impact on your uh, daily work, if you like, mm -hmm. that meeting of two places, uh, the cross-pollination of two different ideals, um, and it, it must enable that creative mind and then that executor in, in some way, and I'm sure there's a spark in between the two. But how 
has kind of pursuing those two ideals informed your choice of work? Mm -hmm. So here is where I think, you know, the we, we get into the framework a little bit because I think it, there, there are sort of like stages of uh, realizing some of these things and, and doing the reflection, right? And I think the first step is kind of, you know, you kind of uh, do your studies and you get into a job and then for a while you are kind of on the surface level. So people tell you to do things and then you do them and maybe you try to, you know, improve yourself at doing those things. But then at some point you kind of reflect and you kind of realize what what is the game that you are actually playing, right? You actually realize, okay, what are the incentives in this system? Who wants to achieve what? How am I doing that, right? So you kind of, you, you start to just kind of see the game. And I think saying something like, you know, like you unplug from the matrix, I think that's a bit too dramatic, right? And it doesn't quite happen in that same sort of, uh, you know, step function. I think it's more gradual. Um, but, but, you know, like it should take a few years probably, and then you realize, okay, you, you start to kind of play the office politics if you are the, the type that wants to get promoted, or you, you know, you kind of close yourself in a box and you kind of hate the, you know, um, people who do that, right? So that's the other side of it. Um, so, so I think that kind of happens and that's kind of the first step to just realize what's, what's happening around you and what you want to do about that, right? Sounds like just recognizing the, the truth of the situation. How does that relate to the two different pulls in different directions? So I think, yeah, I mean, I mean there is the kind of uh, the, the executor, right? So, I mean, just in general, you can split work into kind of individual contribution, right? Where you, where you are the one who makes the output or the kind of uh, reflective mode, which is kind of, uh, let's call it leadership or vision or direction or figuring out what to do, right? And I think people sort of end up being in one of those categories. And I think the best ones can kind of alternate between the two, right? Um, and I think that's, that's uh, for some people, they just never realize that, okay, I'm doing this intentionally and, you know, this is the best place for me and I'm, I'm really good at this, I want to do this. It just sort of happens to them. And, but if you reflect, then you can use it, right? You can, for example, if you are in management, you can kind of jump into the individual contributor mindset to talk to people who are in there and, you know, you can connect better, you can talk about those details that they care about. Um, that's, you know, like really helpful for recruiting, for example, um, because you can kind of talk eye to eye uh, with, with potential candidates and convince them to join your startup, which, you know, um, is a risky thing to do. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, like being able to switch to that, to that, uh, to that bird's eye view basically helps, you know, talk to investors and, and kind of sell the story and, and, and do all of that. Right. So, yeah. If a true advantage is being able to embody both of these things, do you have to realize it first or can you look back and think, oh, that's why I'm successful here because I'm doing both. I think you don't have to realize it for it to happen sometimes, right? So if you are kind of empathetic and you kind of naturally can um, kind of do the best thing in the situation, right? Then sometimes you'll, it will just happen, right? And then somehow you'll maybe look back and try to reflect like, 
why did that meeting go so well? You know, what did I do differently? Uh, and then you actually, you know, and if you do enough of the reflection, you'll kind of hopefully put the pieces together. But if you want to increase the chance that it's happening, right, then I think you have to be intentional about it. And you can, you actually have to think, you know, okay, I'm going to talk to this person. Where are they in their head? And then, you know, how do I get to where I need to be to match that, basically? When were you first intentional? Hmm. And so, so there is like a, you know, unsatisfying answer there, which is like there are different levels of intention as well. So, you know, so for example, my first kind of real job out of university was, uh, was uh, and kind of basically the only job because now I'm a founder. So that one big job that I had uh, was uh, YouTube. Um, I was, uh, I actually interviewed for uh, both the PM role and the engineering role. And then they told me, okay, Daniel, uh, we need more engineers. So you are an engineer now. Um, and, and I think the first kind of four years of the job, I was in the kind of executor mode. Okay. I was a tech lead. I maybe had a small team to work with, but I was just like, you know, maximizing the output basically. Right. Um, and then, and, and that was actually fun. So, so that's really fun to do at Google because you can have like a lot of output and, you know, a, a lot of uh, wheels are spinning when you press the buttons and, you know, it's really satisfying. Um, but then, you know, I kind of started to reflect on these things and kind of be a bit more intentional about, you know, how I'm, uh, what I'm doing there. And that's where it kind of the story started to crack for me a little bit because I couldn't fully do that, right? I couldn't basically say like, you know, here is what we should do. And, and then you have to, you know, do those uh, 10 trips per year to Mountain View if you are based in, in Europe. Uh, so you get sick of fl flying in the airplane and you have to yes, get more into the politics and uh, all of that stuff, right? So I think the first four years were great and they give you kind of awesome environment to just maximize output. Uh, but, and then my kind of the last three years were, you know, slowly realizing that, okay, um, it's hard to be both and it's hard to kind of uh, be the one who sets the direction. Um, and, and then I just left. <laughs> Was that the first time you had that that feeling? The the one the one in like mid, midway through or the leaving. It strikes me that the way that you explain this is part of your character, not necessarily just part of your work. And I wonder before your working journey. Mm -hmm if this realization was, if it popped up at all? Yeah, I mean, I think I was kind of doing things a bit more intuitively. So before Google, I had uh, my first startup and, you know, it's even hard to call it that two engineers building a cool product and then getting, you know, screwed on commercials basically by much more experienced business people, um, which was an awesome lesson, by the way. Um, so, so already back then, you know, I wanted to kind of push my own path and really kind of see what makes the most sense and then do that instead of sort of following some broader, you know, uh, plan of somebody else. Um, but I think I was kind of more intuitive about it uh, because I was kind of 
you know, it was very fast paced. That's another thing that, uh, that makes it really hard to reflect, right? Like if you live kind of week to week, and this is especially tough for founders, I think, because they kind of have to live week to week because things change, you have new information coming in. And if you are always in that mode, it's very hard to, you know, have enough capacity to reflect basically. And the corporate job is awesome for that because they just sort of leave you alone in a way, right? Like that whole part of your brain is just sort of sitting there spinning. And then I think this is why people then sort of decade into their career, they real, they, you know, there is enough time there to kind of reflect on these things and realize, oh, wait a minute, uh, what, what is this, right? I, it sounds like uh, one of the hardest questions to answer in life. How can I be in the moment, but also have an eye on what might be coming down the pipe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, for me, that's the forest or doing activities that I really have to focus on them in the moment and I can't think about work and kind of the day to day. Um, so it used to be rock climbing and now I am paragliding, you know, flying the handkerchief. Uh, and uh, when you do that, uh, you better just really think about uh, the moment. And yeah, that helps a lot to kind of clear the head and, and you know, just take a step back. It makes me think about... Um... Have you watched Bill Gurley's Running Down a Dream YouTube video, his lecture? Not necessarily. It's a, um, I'll, I'll share it with you and put it in the notes of the, uh, of the episode. There's a, um, there's a, he, he talks about different people through history and how they've run down their dream. And there's a part to it or a realization that he comes to, and he looks at the guy who started Shake Shack and Bob Dylan and other people. And, um, one of his realizations is that these people in order to run down their dream they moved to the epicenter of their dream they they went to wherever the location was so uh for the guy who started shake shack uh, uh he he went to the location i can't i think it was new york but he goes to let's say it's new york to to be in the center of the restaurant industry so so he is he's put his his he's in he's in the epicenter of it and as you were talking it seemed to me like in some ways what you're doing is exactly the same thing but just a, a different version instead of there being a kind of an epicenter of a restaurant industry or something you are proactively changing your epicenter and your location mm -hmm. in order to tackle a problem mm -hmm. that you feel is so worth tackling that you're you're willing to design your life in a way that means that you sit in the middle of these two things yes yes and the, the, well put um and you know these things are difficult by themselves if we can make them a bit easier by having the right environment and the right you know people around us um we should right so it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Yeah, Why not yeah. change your environment around you to, to? It's 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 almost like the simplest thing in the book, but yet we forget it. Is how what environment should we create uh, around us in this moment in order to then enable us to do the work that we 
feel is right. It's almost as if you can look objectively at yourself as a machine and say, okay, well, if that machine lived in this environment, its output would likely be X because its inputs were X. Yeah. And it comes with the sacrifice as well, right? Like, uh, let's not forget that uh, moving to New York to pursue your dream means you are leaving a bunch of stuff behind, right? And um, and that also kind of makes... So, so it's almost the act of kind of making space for the new thing, right? By just leaving some stuff behind that uh, is almost as important as kind of where you are going, I think. Um, because, you know, if, if your head stays full and if your kind of people around you stay the same, then there is, isn't the room for the new ones. It, it does matter where you land eventually, but uh, I think, you know, uh, that's kind of the hero's journey, right? Like you need to go towards the adventure, basically. What sacrifices have been most beneficial to you? Hmm. And also, so, so yeah, so for me, right, um, it's easier to make those sacrifices. Um, so, so it's kind of, I think there is cost to sacrifice, uh, to a sacrifice. And if you are not too attached to things or people, it's, it's just easier to make them. So I can sit here and say, you know, sacrifice this and that. Some, for some people, it's just much more difficult, right? And then it's about the trade-off and just, again, the reflection, what do you want to do? Um, yeah, I think for me, the, the, the kind of key moment, I think, was in the university where, you know, most people kind of go and party and just kind of settle for some sort of idea, right? And for me, it was uh, kind of uh, being hungry and kind of constantly challenging kind of every year when I looked back at what I was doing previous year, there was a huge shift, right? Um, and and that kind of uh, kept me going. I think it's the kind of uh, just really being deliberate about people you spend your time with and projects you work on and all of that. Um, and yeah, just say, saying no to people as well. Uh, that's helpful. Uh, that, but that's the challenge, isn't it? How it's, it's almost less who do you choose to work with and what do you choose to work on, but more which projects do you sacrifice, which people do you sacrifice? Yeah, and you probably start by spreading yourself too thin. And I still definitely suffer from that. Um, you know, I, I really love startups and I love to help people and... Um, and I just try to do that as much as possible. And then I see other founders being way more focused on their company, uh, and, you know, not taking like evaluating every single call and not taking it. If it's not sort of obviously contributing to the main thing they're right now working on. Right. Um, and definitely kind of a bit more broad than that. Um, and. Yeah, then you just kind of, uh, you know, mess it up a few times. You say yes a few too many times and um, you disappoint people and that feels bad. And then you remember those moments the next time somebody asks you and, you know, your filter kind of just goes up a little bit. And I think then over time it sort of comes to a good uh, place. But uh, yeah. Is there an optimal level? Because we want to be focused enough to go deep on projects and 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 find the successes of of uh, of committing to something, but we also want to 
be inspired by ideas that are in at the intersection of of projects. So by its nature, you can't just be doing one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that kind of goes back to the whole attention economy, right? Like, how do we stop, you know, just consuming stuff out there? And uh, then maybe one step better is actually talking to people. But you know, there is, you can de definitely overdo that also, right? And how do you, first of all, choose where to really go deep, and then actually be able to actually be able to do that? Because um, I think there's maybe one, maybe the good starting point is realizing where is your kind of good natural place to be, because I think some people are just broader by definition, and then they could be sort of, let's say, journalists, right? So lots of stories and kind of, um, and, and new input all the time. And if that feels more natural, then you should sort of be somewhere in that area, right? Because you'll be just doing better. Um, there are some people who just want to kind of specialize as much as possible and then, you know, improve things, make that little dent in the, you know, circle of uh, human potential, just kind of uh, plop it out a bit more. Um, and so I think figuring out where is your natural place, I think that's 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 a good one. And, and then just sort of exploring around there, right? So just kind of trying a bit more or a bit less and uh, switching it up. How did a younger Daniel explore and f and make those discoveries all the way back? Mm -hmm. So I, I think I have maybe some uh, version of ADHD and uh, not not like officially recognized. And uh, lots of the founders that I talk to seem to have uh, similar symptoms of. And you know there are different types of this, but there is the one which is kind of um, you you are super broad, and then when you focus, you kind of hyper focus, and you don't pay attention, you don't eat, you don't you know there is time doesn't exist, um, and you know and then then you kind of pop out again and new direction, and you know so I'm, I'm a bit like this naturally, um, and. For me, the the so so I definitely had those periods of going down, and then when I kind of came back for for air, it was usually I was permitted by my environment to go to just whatever felt interesting, um, and I think, and and it was so you and you kind of earned it when you go deep. So let's, if if it's like a cycle, right, like going deep and being interested, um, if you show that you can you know, execute in some way. And this goes back to kind of high school, right? Like if I if I got interested into something and then I got really deep and people around me recognized that, then the next time I came up and I was like, oh, there is this new thing, let's try that. They kind of let me because first of all, it was annoying to fight me. And then secondly, uh, they knew that if, if they let me, like at least it's going to, you know, be something, something new and uh, kind of fun. So, um, that's why, you know, like, uh, I, I kind of almost got kicked out of school for some subjects, but they didn't kick me out because I was doing like the math Olympiad and, you know, stuff like this. And this was also the, in university like this, I, um, before, basically when I joined a subject that I really liked, I kind of pitched the main sort of, uh, lecturer of the subject that I want to help them improve it. And I was like a teaching assistant. And I was writing lectures 
as I was taking the class, basically, because it was super fun and the person just wanted to get, you know, wanted to do less work. So they just let me, right? Um, But then that opened another door and another door. And um, luckily, I can kind of keep doing that right now with the startup. um, We can sort of explore things and go deep and uh, people trust us with a little bit of money and, you know, uh, clients seem intrigued. So that's something like that. There's this every time you go around in one of those loops, you're striking upon this inclination that you have this interest that you have it's like this kind of constant conversation between you the depths of you your inclinations and the world the environment that you're in and it almost feels like they're kind of the hammering back and forth and each time they do so it's learning more about you're learning more about yourself you're learning more about the environment it's almost like by having such a feedback loop between the two your 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 growth is accelerating there as opposed to if you kind of muddled along in all of them Mm -hmm. yes yes i think it really helps because people take you i think more seriously if they see that the previous thing you cared about like something cool happened with that right um and now you seem really really into this new thing and uh, and I think that maybe inspires them to kind of come along and uh, see where that's going, right? How do you know what your inclinations are? So I think you need to be able to listen to this, uh, right? You need to be able to, it's kind of coming back to the reflection and just uh, also kind of not inhibiting yourself as much, right? So kind of just being able to see what you are curious about and where you think there is something more there and then kind of just pulling that string and not being afraid to just go for it. And yeah, I don't really care, for example, what what people, and you know, this is such a cliche thing to say that you don't care what people think about you and all of that, right? Um, but I think you have to be a bit shameless to just uh start over all like every time kind of start from scratch in a way i was admiring your courage and your bravery as you spoke about how you would be so particularly focused on one area but not another right yeah and and i think once you once you go around that loop a few times you also build that skill right you build that kind of uh wonder and uh, you feel comfortable being naive, basically. Um, you know, you feel you feel you feel like um, it's it, that it's not the, the punishment for being wrong. Actually, is not so severe as you might think in your head, right? And so, uh, or you know, there is definitely part of luck in this, right? So I can sit here and say, oh, just go and try different things, and it's going to work out. Um, there is definitely a huge element of luck that, you know, I was able to kind of get those first uh, couple bets right, maybe. And then that that kind of gives me a little bit of runway and leeway to also be wrong. Uh, so maybe the first ones you do should be slightly more conservative. Maybe that's the way to do this, right? Like, don't go off of the deep end uh, immediately, but just sort of... Um, um, Try to just use kind of the knowledge that you already might have, right? So 
um, and then just kind of go one step adjacent from there, maybe. Um, and then as you go, you kind of build a sense for bigger leaps. When you position work in your mind, some people think about it as a, a duty. Other people may think about it as play. And as you've been talking about it, it feels more like a kind of loose play and a discovery in this, uh, this, this big exploration. How do you, is that correct? And how do you, how do you create a mindset that allows you to be in that place and not see it as duty? Well, I mean, there is definitely value to the feeling of duty as well, um, especially if you found sort of a thing that's worth uh, being dutiful towards, right? Um, I think there's definitely a way to misplace that feeling, right? And kind of be manipulated. Um, so when you do the kind of, when you are more on the, on the side of the game, I think you just um, things, take things more for what they are, right? Like you don't have this big overarching narrative in your head um, that maybe somebody else put there or, or you kind of constructed it maybe uh, unconsciously. Um, but, but if you're in that play zone, then you just kind of take things for what they are and you just try to sort of uh, make, make it uh, interesting and entertaining for you and people around you, hopefully. Um, so, so I think that helps. And I think this is also related to what I said earlier, which is that I started to think in these ways, at least, you know, the really initial moments uh, in, in high school. And back then I was uh, really into game theory. So I was, uh, you know, this, this nerdy kid doing these uh, in informatics uh, competitions and all of this stuff. And game theory always fascinated me because there is some mystery there, right? So it's not just like an algorithm or data structure, but there is some like interaction of different parties and maybe they have imperfect information about the adversary, right? So <clears throat> this was always <clears throat> interesting. And, and I think that actually kind of shaped the way I look at things even still. Um, and that's kind of what I mean that you can kind of date people by how they think. Um, because a lot of this, for, for many people, this comes from kind of whatever is uh, interesting or kind of whatever is the hype in the moment they become kind of reflective, right? And so you can kind of backdate people to, uh, to, to different, obviously, cultures, but time periods or, you know, maybe what shows they were watching as a kid. Because I think these things like leak through into your subconscious and then inform how how uh this all works so when you next time you talk to somebody just think about it right it's like okay so i'm, I'm getting some signals from this person like uh, think about kind of how those could have been formed and you know like what maybe came together to to make that person it's fun fun exercise it sounds like uh fossils and <laughs> uh <laughs> how how the the silters kind of protected each different layer and and as we look back you can you can tell when what age someone comes from mm -hmm. the cognitive off, cognitive cognitive archaeology right mm. <laughs> do you think that the people around you as you came of age in that moment also feel the same 
like do you have friends who were at a similar age to you who also think with a a game theory um so I think most of my kind of peers uh, that were really, um, you know, nerdy back then, um, they, so, so a lot of them were better at it, right? It's just math, right? And I think that perhaps made them specialize um, and then they couldn't quite maybe make the connections. So I was always kind of, you know, talkative enough to also kind of uh, explore new new things and talk to new people and um, not too much, but a little bit at least, you know, uh, given my background. Um, and and I think, so that made, made it a bit easier to not just kind of spend uh, 20 years in that mode, for example, right? Um, and I think it's it has been over kind of the many years after that, that somehow through what I was doing, I came in contact with people that thought more similar to how I think. So, you know, because high school is maybe some selection of people from a city, right? And yeah, you will get like the nerdiest people from the city, for example, if you go to, to my high school. Um, but it's still a relatively kind of small set to choose from and only on certain criteria is that choice being made, right? But as you kind of go, and especially if you are in this kind of exploration mode as well, I think you come across people that will probably think similarly to you, right? Because people kind of self-select into these groups and into these conversations. And so it has been more in the later stages of, of uh, you know, closer to, to the present time that I actually found people that are like creepily similar to me. You know, <laughs> if we were to do some kind of cognitive archaeology on your parents, how, what was theirs, and how did that affect you? So I think, yeah, we have to mention the context, right? So I was the kind of kid of the nineties. Um, I was fourteen in the year 2000, um, which just now that I think about it is a weird way to report your kind of uh, birthday, but, uh, <laughs> but, but basically, you know, so kind of uh, early teenage years in the late 90s, let's say, um, in Slovakia, which, you know, was like a post-Soviet uh, vibe, sort of, um, and so but it's actually interesting now that I think about it that so my father is a software engineer as well uh, and definitely on the nerdy side, right? And then my mother is kind of uh, artsy, so a journalist and uh, kind of in fashion and, uh, you know, she has a website about um, hair, kind of, you know, hair saloons and different hairstyles. Sounds and all a bit that. yin and yang. <laughs> Yeah, so now that I think about it, there is definitely uh, a little bit of both in that plan, yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I find hardest is when you have a vision, you 
And you're using one of you. Know, I don't know whether it's your yin or your yang, but one of the sides of you that uh, is being more creative and looking to the future. You never. It is so easy to get pulled into a duty trap. You could all. I mean, you know, let's coin it. You call it like a visionary duty trap, where you create this vision, and what you want to do in an ideal world is paint it is uh, look forward to it and then pull all the way back to the present moment and continue to be in a state of play and a, and a state of flow and, a, and, a, and be driven by the fun and the love but it's so tricky because when you create that vision and then you have other people who also care about that vision too you your work can seep into a a kind of almost like a pit of duty where you feel duty bound to to pursue your work did you feel in any way that that's something you've experienced and how do we navigate it so that's interesting i think one aspect of this is that you actually have kind of multiple visions probably uh, everybody probably does. Um, there might be some dominant ones and kind of secondary, but probably you have some vision for, you know, your family uh, and maybe friends and how you want to conduct yourself and how you want all that to end, right? And sort of that's one. And then there is the professional one. Maybe you have a vision for kind of the broader world, how the world should be, right? And, you know, ideally you can kind of connect some of these things together, right? So that you can uh, sort of invest and then those uh, build on top of each other in some way, right? So kind of realizing this is, I think, the first step that there might be powers uh, of vision that maybe pull you in different directions and how better to align those, right? Uh, that's, I think, the big picture. Um, and, you know, for me, it's kind of... Uh, I try to simplify the, the the secondary ones, right? So I try to kind of um, have some basic standards, right? In uh, let's say uh, what I eat, <laughs> but I'm not really so fussy about it, right? Or what I wear, you know, stuff like this. I, in terms of personal relationships, I don't have that many. Um, I, you know, I have a girlfriend and close set of friends, but. Um, I moved countries, so I'm kind of far from my family. So, you know, I, you know, there isn't that much kind of day to day happening. Um, so just kind of simplifying the, the, the basic stuff, I would say. And then if there is something really difficult you are trying to achieve, like don't try to do too many difficult things all at once. Right. And so, um, so, so it's good to have, you know, one kind of goalpost, right? And let's call, so for a founder, for example, that would be, okay, um, how do I see the future? And then how does my company fit into that, right? And then how am I kind of driving towards that? And then I think there are different ways to formulate the, the let's say, the vision for your company. And there are ways to do it in a, in a, like, like like better and worse ways, I mean. And the worst ways will not, don't serve you as well. Like it's easier to be enslaved and kind of stuck uh, when you misdefine this basically. And what I mean is the vision should be sort of uh, at the same time kind of uh, concrete, right? It should be sort of easy for people to imagine it and embody it and, you know, want it. Um, 
But at the same time, it has to be flexible enough so that when new information comes in, you can actually change what you are doing on the tactical level, right? And you don't become kind of enslaved in, for example, certain way of doing things, right? Like the vision should be, okay, I want some sort of outcome, let's say, um, but maybe how I get there needs to be still figured out and I'm keeping an open mind about it, right? Uh, if that be, if that story becomes too rigid, um, and it's just so easy for that to happen. For example, when you fundraise, you say that story for million times, right? And then it's basically like uh, solidifies, ossifies in your brain, right? And and that's not helpful, right? So I think it, it's 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 awesome to be able to articulate a vision that's that permits flexibility in the short term, basically, or medium term. And if I was someone who didn't have ambitions to build a company, I wasn't building a company, but instead I was navigating my career journey. And I was, as I went through the experience, accumulating more knowledge, more experience, and therefore kind of more leverage and ultimately more res responsibility. There's a real challenge at that point where the amount of responsibility that you hold, the baggage that you're carrying on your back can begin to weigh you down and, and not give you the kind of freedom and the fluidity to be able to be at play. I understand it, but at the same time, I think the best employees have a little bit of a founder mindset uh, as well. And they kind of, you know, so the whole thing that I said I don't think it's specific to to starting or running a company. Um, I think that having an idea for how things should be. So, so for example, when I think about my time at, at Google, right, as I was kind of doing this individual contribution work and then suddenly kind of realizing, okay, there is this like bigger picture here. Um, you know, for three years, I have been trying to kind of, and I think to some extent succeeding, to, to kind of um, shape that baggage on my back, right? Shape that definition of, okay, um, what should my responsibilities be and what should we be driving towards and which things in my backpack kind of help with that and which don't, right? Um, I don't know if you have to be sort of a bit cold to do that, right? A bit kind of you know, just kind of putting that backpack down for a while, opening it up and just kind of going through what's in there, right? Like that could feel um, a bit sort of distanced from what's actually happening, right? Um, because you could maybe have this thing in your head, which is, no, I'm just going to carry that backpack and I'm not going to disappoint anybody and that's my duty and uh, and so on. It's almost as if you're... Your one of your responsibilities is to distance yourself from the emotion of the situation, maybe, and to instead recognize that the what you really need to do in that scenario is embody that state of play for for everyone else. It's 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 the coldness almost feels like it was the first word that came to my head too, and I thought I don't know if that's quite right because it's not that you're necessarily being cold or that you're not being empathetic it's it's more that you're kind of being objective in a way and you're you're looking at the scenario as if you were advising 
someone else rather than being hepped up in the relationships or the emotion. Exactly. That's what uh, that's the classic kind of psychology trick, right? Is that people ask you, so what if your brother or friend was in this situation, what advice would you give them, right? And we are so good at giving advice and kind of um, understanding or, or kind of picking apart situations that don't involve us, uh, you know, in a, in a very direct way and then maybe giving advice and um, we definitely don't do that enough to ourselves and I'm, you know, super guilty of this as well. Um, Throughout this conversation, I feel like as as we've gone through it, I've I've become more and more like I I would love to experience uh, Daniel's working life, and I know that that's a a falsification to a certain degree. If you were giving your, should we do it with you? If you were giving yourself, if let's say that you, your brother was in your situation, or your, right. or, or your, or your, but your partner, what advice would you be giving them at this moment in time? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, so there is this trade-off between. Um, asking people for feedback and having a hypothesis of how things should be right um and and i think people are kind of bad at evaluating abstract questions right um so so i think and i think this is what i think right and this results in me being a bit more on the hypothesis side and staying there for a bit too long. So let's say I think, um, you know, here is how this should work, this component of something, right? I, I, I just take kind of my context and what I know and I just put it in there and, you know, here is how this should be. And I tend to not ask for feedback for perhaps longer than, uh, than it would, than, you know, would be the most efficient way to do this. So I think if I was giving advice to myself would be to kind of um, somehow uh, ask questions earlier and, you know, let people speak and not just sort of say, you know, tell them, you sort of, here is how this will be, right? But kind of get more of them uh, into it uh, without letting it spoil the plan too much. Because I think these are, I'm, I'm still trying to balance this out properly because I, I have seen sort of both extremes, right? Like people being like too married to that vision, to the idea, to how things should be pursuing it. And then it's just wrong. And it's just so easy to be wrong, right? Uh, but I've seen the opposite of being too reactive and just sort of never really creating something new, basically. Um, but I think if I'm just trying to be as objective as possible, I'm a bit too on the kind of in my own head side of things. Um, and I could be a bit more just kind of going to people's offices and sitting there and just seeing how they work and being open to update my idea of, you know, what is happening in their head. And it's funny is how it's funny that that, final question touched upon 
the point at which uh, I think we've we've got to at each stage, which is where is the meeting point between these two things, and how can you identify at what point you've you've got it right? Yeah, I mean, so we have been talking about taking a step back the whole time, and then you made me do it uh, in the end, right? So um, I think that was quite instructional. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know, like this is, uh, I think it's difficult to to get anything right. And so you need to figure out the way to try as many times as possible and get that feedback, right? And just build the environment around yourself in a way that permits this and kind of minimizes damage of uh, being wrong. Um, and and then you just get better over time at recognizing what works and what doesn't. Like there is no tip for how to do that better other than have a process that helps you sort of calibrate, right? And because that process you have uh, decent control over, right? Like how do I want to conduct that exploration? Um, and yeah, just be efficient. And is there a, a, a kind of final layer to this too, which is that I don't know whether you can know whether you've found the the right spot in the moment. I don't know if in my own journey I've ever known at the time that I've managed to strike the right balance between my original thought and those of an advisor or the vision that I paint and making sure that it adapts as it goes or um, the enough rest and uh, enough focus and uh, enough breadth and enough speciality. Like I almost in the moment have never known whether th that point is right. But when I look back with hindsight, the dust has settled and I have more clarity of how close I got, but I never know in the moment whether it was right. So when you are in that moment, um, do, do you, like sometimes it just feels a bit better and sometimes it just feels a bit uh, too much or too little, right? Like, I think there is some way to just be in tune a little bit more. What's kind of how this actually feels and um, kind of pattern match with how things felt bef before. Um, and, and just sort of... Um, learn to recognize that because it should feel kind of reasonably good if you are doing the right thing, right? Like this is, I think people, so there is this like type two fun, right? Which is even if you are doing something hard and even if that should just kind of feel miserable, somehow there is a way to recognize that and feel that, you know, this is actually the right thing to be doing. And then you use that to kind of propel you forward basically. Right. So if you are doing like some very difficult sport feat and you are just miserable, but somehow still enjoy it. And I think that's in different activities, this applies as well. And uh, yeah. But I guess it also depends how, what, on what, how you position that reward, because if you are going through that, that kind of physical journey or you're, you're doing something sporting, if you're, it's not going to feel great in the moment. But in the long term, it's going to pay off in the same way that if I eat McDonald's, it's happy days in the in, in the short term. But in the long term, it's not. And and it, so it's hard to know. You almost need to make sure that you've kind of got the the bricks in order there. 
I think basically, so I like to run, uh, that's kind of another thing. And running is kind of one of the, on the surface, one of the more miserable activities, right? Like everything kind of hurts, you're out of breath, all of that. Um, but if you, if you have done it enough times, you also kind of somehow feel that it's the right thing to do in that moment. Like it's, you know, at some point it doesn't take this reflection and this kind of talking to yourself, like, let's go running today uh, because I know with my kind of brain, right, uh, uh, that this is good for me. So I'll just make myself do it. And then you kind of really suffer the whole time. And then you have to sort of like look at the Strava chart and be like, okay, I did something for myself, right? That's kind of the basic, that's, that's how the beginning feels, right? Because the body doesn't yet associate that pain with kind of that it's good. But basically once you do it enough times, it actually kind of somehow connects, like the dots connect and actually running feels miserable, like still, like, you know, that doesn't just disappear, but also somehow you feel that this is actually kind of good. And I think that's not just for running, right? I think it's for anything. Like I have those moments where, you know, I'm like trying to solve some difficult problem and, uh, you know, I'm banging my uh, head against the wall. But somehow I also feel that these are the kind of magical moments, right? And then somehow enjoy it at the same time. It's a, it, it's like this. It feels like a similar loop to to before, except the or at least the similarity between both is that every time that loop comes round, it's it's like it's, it's kind of giving to you every time and you're having to listen to it every time it's not happening without you it it kind of is just checking in every time it comes around and you're taking this small bit of information every time and you're slowly building up your either your if you're focused on one task and then you come out of it move move on to the next thing it's like that loop has given you something in the same way that if you're going running every time you do it it's difficult but then it's kind of giving you something in the loop and it almost feels like the most difficult part in both of those scenarios is being able to take the information to listen to yourself mm -hmm. yeah and i mean it's kind of there are big moments of reflection in big moments of your life you're changing you're thinking about leaving a job you're trying to decide what to do next those are the big reflection moments we need to practice that and long walk in the forest or even a weekend or whatever helps there, right? But there is like a small version of that that almost happens all the time. And it's it's kind of like a real-time version of that loop and just kind of listening to how that moment feels. You, I think you can kind of tap into that as well, right? So it's like a mini retreat that happens every three seconds while you run. And then there is like the big retreat uh, that's like, which job am I going to take next? But I think yeah, there is some. I think that these are connected, and uh, the kind of the the commonality there is the the opening yourself up to those feelings, basically, and uh, reflections. And I guess it shows on how unhelpful it can be at times to have big life moments where you say, oh, "I'm going to change everything." You almost go through a state of feeling lost for a period of years, and then all of a sudden try to find out find yourself find the situation you go on an exploration in a in a short period of time when actually the the truth will only bear itself to you over a with a drip feed over a prolonged period of time yeah yeah i think there is kind of like a reservoir right that's filling up somewhere in the back of your head right 
And then, I, like, if you are kind of in tune with that, then it doesn't sort of overflow, right? You kind of uh, sip from it, uh, everyone, like, quite often. Um, and then there are those moments where you, like, really need to open the floodgates and take a stock of what's happening. And those are the bigger moments. And, yeah, like, I think you need a bit of both. I won't forget the reservoir analogy. And that was incredible. Th thanks a lot for that and uh, have, a, have a great day. All right, man. Hopefully see you soon. Bye. The Best Work Podcast is produced by the team at Cord. I'd love your advice on how we can make sure the Best Work Podcast is having a profound impact on the way we all pursue our best work. Email me at bennettcord.co. You can also find a transcript of this conversation, insightful video content, and more at cord.co slash insights. Thanks for listening.